0: Welcome, Poolside, for this special edition of the Carolina Weather Group. I'm James Bridgerton in a very warm Charlotte, and a happy 4th of July weekend to all of you listening and watching at home or on the road. We're going to be spending this hour showing you some never-before-seen interviews about the hurricane season. We're a month now into the 2019 hurricane season, and things have been relatively quiet here in the Atlantic, but things are expected to heat up and start churning out storms. Really, really soon. So, we wanted to take this opportunity to show you some never before seen interviews with the director of the National Hurricane Center, Ken Graham, with local television meteorologist Eric Thomas and Larry Sprinkle, and other officials who we caught up with right here in Charlotte when the hurricane hunters stopped by to visit. Special thanks to the Charlotte Douglas International Airport, the National Weather Service in Greenville, Spartanburg, and the National Hurricane Center and other agencies who put on the event and allowed us time to talk with all of these officials. But before we get to tonight's interviews, a reminder, what are hurricane hunters and what do they do? Let's go aboard an aircraft and we'll show you exactly how they fly in to the eye of a storm. NOAA's Lockheed WP-3D Orion turboprop aircraft slices through a hurricane as nerves inside rattle with every wake of turbulence.
1: Because as a pilot, I was trained to fly to stay away from bad weather, and now that's my mission, is to fly into bad weather. Now, the plane itself is just a 1976 P-3. It's not structurally enhanced at all. Um, there's a lot of scientific gear in the back that makes it special, but up here, it's pretty much an airliner. This,
0: this, this is a a drop sound instrument we actually launch out of the aircraft. It's, it's expendable. Uh, once it's gone, it's gone. It's about $750. What we do, we, we launch out of the aircraft and don't recover it, but as it's, as it's launched out through the hurricane, it sends back data. That includes temperature, humidity, barometric pressure, wind speed, wind direction. It transmits it back to the aircraft like a robot. We receive it here and then, and then transmit that data back to the hu- National Hurricane Center, which helps better predict the hurricanes. Hurricane Katrina, the red line was the original track of the hurricane, predicted. Uh, once we once we flew through it, and then with, with including this instrument, and other instruments, the green line became the new track, and the black line was the was the actual track of Hurricane. And now, without further ado, we begin our series of interviews with National Hurricane Center Director Ken Graham.
2: All right, we're here at the Hurricane Awareness Tour, and we're with National Hurricane Center Director Ken Graham. Ken, uh, we also uh, want to tell you uh, thank you very much for coming into the inland parts of the Carolinas, and uh, we we're talking a little bit off camera. Uh, you specifically target this area for the heavy rain threat so to us a little bit about that
3: yeah absolutely But you look at the data 83 percent of the fatalities in the last three years has been from inland flooding so you know you start thinking about that you start looking at the data and you know this whole hurricane issue the impacts it's not just coastal it really is inland so we had the idea we need to hold more of these tours we need to do more outreach inland and that's why we pick the inland cities let's talk about the heavy rain
2: Talking about the heavy rain uh, last year, North Carolina experienced Alberto. uh, We had Florence, even some touches of Michael with heavy rain. So, uh, as you guys just finished your review of those events, tell us about some of the maybe the uh, crazy stats that you saw come out of Florence uh, with the heavy rain threat.
3: Yeah, it's interesting when you look at it because the actual track forecast was was pretty much right on track. We did a great job with the track. The the intensity forecast is still tough. I mean, we we're underdoing it at the beginning, and then we overshot the intensity forecast towards the end. So we still struggle with this whole intensity problem. But here's the deal, despite the intensity, the impacts were the same. Even with the winds coming down, the impacts didn't change at all. Storm surge, think about this, 100 miles inland, we had the highest values of the storm surge. I mean, that's something that we talk about. It's not just a coastal threat, it's inland. And that was predicted four days ahead of time. The rainfall forecast, almost perfect five days ahead of time. So what's happening here? We, we got good forecasts but we still have people in the water. So I think this is other component that we have to talk about it. And it's it's behavioral and social science, getting that information into the forecast as well. And so we can communicate the best we can to get a good response.
2: And you know, Ken, one thing is we see categories one, two, three, four, five. A lot of people focus on the wind threat, but it's actually the inland flood threat, uh, the river flooding that happens days afterwards. Uh, That's where a lot of focus, I think you guys are trying to focus on as well as we come into this upcoming hurricane season. Yeah, you, you
3: just look at the data. I mean, so many people are losing their lives inland from the inland flooding, it's not just coastal. So we are putting an emphasis on that. And you think about, you know, some of the new products that we have uh, that castrate on, on the impacts, not just the category, because people have to remember. I mean, we talk about it all the time. The category is only the wind. And, and it's interesting with this Afro-Simpson scale. If you go from a four to a one, we relax. But if you go from nothing to a one, we're, we're prepared, right? still a one. So it isn't about just the winds. It really isn't. It's about the size and the speed, which influenced the heavy rain, which influenced the storm surge. That's what's hurting people, and that's what we got to keep talking about.
2: So as we look at storms developing in the waters and coming towards the United States coast, take us into your office. What's going on in there? I know you're the director, so maybe kind of tell our folks what you do and what's going on in the Hurricane Center as we're watching these storms approach.
3: Yeah, people don't realize we're pretty small. There's only 43 people that, that work at the Hurricane Center. So we're also there 24 hours a day we're doing the marine forecast for the Atlantic and also the Pacific. So it's a 24-hour watch on what's happening in the tropics. So once you see something you know we're talking about it, we're looking at it, if it's a place we need to investigate we'll actually assign these aircraft, both the Air Force and NOAA, to go look at those potential areas that that could develop. So we're working very close with the hurricane hunters to dispatch the flights. So if it's something that looks like uh, that's going to develop we start looking at uh, measuring the winds, we got a depression and get to a tropical storm and a hurricane. So then it's all about getting a good forecast out and, and really um, that's just part of the equation. The other big part, probably the bigger part to be honest, is getting the information to emergency managers, decision makers, getting it to the people that have these really big decisions to make. The better science we can give them, the, the better decisions they can make, and that means we have a better response from the public and we can save lives.
2: Speaking of lead time, you guys, over the past year or so, p- uh, produced the uh, potential tropical cyclone outlooks. And I'm sure that's been a big help to those emergency managers and those folks who need to make those decisions. Kind of talk to the folks uh, who may not know about that product, what that exactly is.
3: You know, when somebody hears the potential tropical cyclone product, it, it may not sound like a big deal, but it really, really is. I mean, if, if you think about lead time to, to, to get ready for a hurricane, it's all about working a timeline. So if we can find a way to, to extend that timeline it helps people get ready and I looked at the data and, and, and if you look at the last two to three years with a potential tropical cyclone product over the last couple of years we've given people on average another 15 and a half hours of lead time as high as 24 hours so what that does is it gives you an extra day to be able to prepare for a hurricane so it doesn't sound like much but it's very meaningful on the ground.
2: You were talking about outreach earlier one thing you guys have really got into a lot is the Facebook lives the periscopes the social media room and honestly that's where a lot of folks are now getting their weather information so talk to us about that how you prepare those graphics and uh, once the storm ramps up you guys are on Facebook live it seems like almost every other hour given constant updates and uh, talk about that and uh, how that's affected those folks who are in the path of the storm.
3: And you look at where people get information social media is just increasing so much um, throughout time. I mean I look at my own kids and how much information they get on social media on a regular basis so, you know, you issue the products, you issue the warnings, and you, you kind of think about it, it's like, where do we have a conversation about this storm? So we got the idea, so we, we start going live on social media, and it's, notice it's not just me. You know, I may give the, the ladies and greatest on the storm, but then I'll say, let's go talk to somebody. Let's meet the person that actually is doing the forecast. Let's go meet the people behind the scenes. I think that's important because we, we care so much about the, doing a, a great job to get the forecast out and get the information out, meet the people doing it. And I think it's an effective way to get information out notice they're they're not scripted they could be raw I don't know when I'm gonna fall all those things come to mind but the reality is I think it's an effective way to get information out right to everybody right in their pockets right right to their homes let's talk about this storm
2: so uh, Ken as you are the uh, director of the Hurricane Center as we get into the uh, 2019 tropical system what would you like to tell the folks of the Carolinas what do they need to be on the lookout for what do they need to to get prepared for uh, this tropical season
3: you know 30 years ago we had hugo and it really reminds reminds us you know you had 100 mile an hour winds deep inland with with trees down heavy rain look it's, it's all about those impacts and, and the whole entire hurricane season it only takes one to make it a bad season for the, for the Carolinas. And, and, and look, you gotta be ready, not just on the coast. I urge everybody, when you close your eyes, don't just see the wind, don't just see the beach. Please see the water, see inland flooding, and be ready to take action if, if you get those warnings.
2: All right, Ken, we certainly appreciate uh, a little bit of your time. And uh, we hope it's not too active of a season for you.
3: Uh, I'm ready for a quieter season. <laughs> All right.
4: So today we're gonna to be talking about flash. Um, and everything that it stands for and what you all do. Can you tell us a little bit about what FLASH stands for, first of all? Absolutely.
5: Well, we started out as the Florida Alliance for Safe Homes, but quickly became the federal alliance because we work all over the U.S., as well as the Caribbean, and really globally. Our mission is strengthening homes and safeguarding families, and we do that by providing information. We take science engineering and we bring it through to the street so to speak in a way that consumers can understand it it's a little bit more digestible than maybe when it comes off of the presses from the science side
4: absolutely so that's going to come with a lot of testing Um, Do you guys have a laboratory that you test, model home, something like that?
5: Well, see, the beauty is we don't have to test, but we partner with the academic community where they have the laboratories and the private sector. Mm -hmm. You think about the types of products that make your home resilient. They have some of the best testing labs privately in the country. But what we do is we do risk communication testing. So what we'll do is we'll test drive assumptions for the consumer then we'll create messaging, we test drive the messaging for effectiveness, and then we do public outreach to push it out the door.
4: Okay, that's awesome. So, what are the different types of weather that y'all generally try to cover um, in terms of safety?
5: So, we focus on all natural hazards, primarily hurricane, flood, tornado, but we also do earthquake and lightning, and then we Do winter weather as well we we try to provide a year-round opportunity for people to make their lives better as well as strengthening their homes by being empowered with good info okay do
4: you all help out after storms so when people are trying to rebuild is that something that you get involved in
5: what we do is on two fronts first we send our experts out engineers and building officials on the teams that assess building performance so it's kind of like the ntsb of a hurricane when you're saying, how well did this community survive from a built perspective? Did the houses, did the roofs stay on? Did we have adequate um, elevation for flood? And we try to be a part of that and it's a really good system and then those reports get published and then we help peer review those. Um, After 2017, we actually helped do a lot of the research for the reports on Maria and Irma, as well as Harvey and others. So we do that, but then on the policy side, the way we help is we like to see programs where homeowners get grants to harden their home and retrofit and do things to make that roof stay on. Because that's the key in high wind, as you know, is we've got to have the roof to the wall, the wall to the foundation, keep the whole thing intact.
4: Exactly. And so are there actually different locations around the country? I'm sure some places have better infrastructure than others. Um, are there like you know, certain, uh, like the Gulf Coast, for instance, uh, is their infrastructure and in their housing? You find that's generally better um, or worse because they're in a more hurricane-prone area?
5: Well, the, the, the starting point for all good building performance and the predictor performance is building codes, and they are different all over the country. So because of that, we're trying to bring more transparency to the building code issue by providing information. we just now, for hurricane season this year, launched for the first time ever a consumer-facing web portal where you can go in and look up your address and see what kind of building code is adopted where you live. It's a huge undertaking. It'll be a multi-year project. So we're starting with residential codes and we're starting with current codes. And instead of giving you a lot of technical garbage as a family, you don't want that. We'll give you a red, yellow, green analysis. It says green because your community has a code adopted today. Yellow, they have a code adopted but it might be out of date. And red is fire alarm. You have no building code adopted where you live, so you've got to do something differently to make sure. The the campaign is called No Code, No Confidence, and then you come to inspecttoprotect.org to to look and see what you have. That's really the first thing that you need to do to understand, how is my house going to be in a fill-in-the-blank, earthquake, flood, hurricane, tornado?
4: For people that realize that maybe their house isn't up to code, what are their next steps?
5: Well, the thing they need to do is get an inspection. We actually have some DIY inspections. So we can start off slowly asking some basic questions about things around the house that you can go and take pictures of and understand you know, what you have. And then our process and everything we have as a nonprofit is free. So you can call us. And then if you get to that point where you wanna have a home inspection, we can give your home inspector an addendum list to make sure he looks at the right or she looks at the right things. And then you just have to move through the process you know and figure it out but it's, it's it's something we want you to start thinking about now while the weather's good because think of the decisions that key off of your building performance should i stay or should i go am i safe here are my kids safe here what about your largest single investment which is your home is it going to be around Um, There's a whole host of things you have to do to prepare, but when it comes to the house, you have to get to know your house.
4: Absolutely, and it's been a rough few years for homeowners along the coast. We've had Harvey and Michael and Matthew, and it's just, uh, it's definitely a major issue in these times. And as we're entering hurricane season, like you said, now it's time to act.
5: We want people to know, though, and and in some cases our research tells us that people think there's nothing they can do. That is not the case and that's what we're here to help them figure out. There are plenty of things you can do, some yourself, some with the help of others, but they can come to us and we'll help them figure out where to start.
4: Awesome. Thank you so much, Leslie.
5: Thank you. Thank you very much. Cool.
2: All right, we're here with Daniel Brown with the uh, National Hurricane Center and Daniel, North Carolina native, so went to school at UNC Asheville. So welcome back. We're glad to have you. And uh, so talk to us a little bit about what you do at the uh, Hurricane Center.
6: Sure. I'm one of the senior hurricane specialists, also serve as the warning coordination (laughs) meteorologist at the center. So during the hurricane season, I'm one of the forecasters, putting out those uh, tropical storm and hurricane forecasts during the off season. I'm coordinating a lot of our outreach and education efforts, which we do a tremendous amount of uh, between January and, and May.
2: Yeah, and so I believe you guys are just coming off of having some emergency managers and meteorologists coming in. Kind of talk to us about that program and how that really helps out not only you guys, but also folks who are back here in the Carolinas and along the east and the Gulf Coast.
6: Sure. The, the off-season for us is really the outreach and education season. One of our former directors said, Max Mayfield said that the battle of the hurricane is actually won during the off season. And it's really true because we provide so much training. It's when we need to get prepared for the next season. But we actually do about 10 weeks of training at the Hurricane Center. We have three weeks that we train emergency managers from the Gulf Southeast and Northeast United States. Uh, We take that course on the road for a couple of weeks. We bring in other meteorologists. We actually, this week at the Hurricane Center, are training meteorologists from around the Caribbean. We have a couple from uh, from the Far East as well. And so uh, we provide that training, and then we have training for our own National Weather Service folks. We're, We're all in this together. We want everybody to be able to message the events, uh, especially provide that decision support to emergency managers, and so we again provide all this training during the off season.
2: And speaking of messaging, uh, you guys have really become vocal on social media, which a lot of folks have. Talk about that outreach and just how it's really helped out the folks who've been in the path of the storms over the past couple of years.
6: Sure, we're trying more and more to reach folks with social media. You know, especially the younger generation—that's the way they're getting a lot of their messages. And so we're we're using it to uh, you know uh, tweet and put on Facebook. Uh, information about storms that might form, where they might be going. So, follow us on social media. One thing that we've started to do the last few years is we put together key messages. These are really those top three or four things that we want you to take away from that forecast, from that advisory, things that you need to be concerned about. Uh, and we're taking those and putting those in a graphic on social media. So follow along uh, this hurricane season. We're one of those trusted sources. Follow your local National Weather Service office as well.
2: And Daniel, talking about the uh, graphics that you guys produce, uh, the cone of uncertainty, which is what we've, we've termed it as. A lot of folks, if, if they see a center line and that's where they think that the hurricane's gonna be, kind of talk to us about the uncertainty and how that can shift and how everyone needs to be on alert if you live anywhere near a storm.
6: absolutely so a lot of people think the cone of uncertainty tells where the impacts are going to be and it doesn't Uh, it it really tells you nothing about the impacts it's only telling you where the center of the storm is likely to track Uh, we designed it in in such that about a third of the time the center can actually move outside the cone so even if you're near the edge of the cone or just outside the cone you know be aware uh, be alert Um, oftentimes as we get closer to the event where the cone gets really narrow Impacts are always occurring outside the, the cone storm surge, heavy rainfall, winds, and so uh, you really want to start looking more at the watches and warnings that are in effect. Look at some of the other graphics we produce where it tells you your risk of winds, uh, listen to your local media. Uh, that's the advice we really want uh, folks to be focused on the hazards not storm category not storm track but on the hazards
2: and talking about that the intensity forecast you guys produce and the track forecast you guys monitor those every year after every storm season and the track forecast was pretty spot-on last year
6: yes uh, uh, we continue to make improvements in our track forecast Uh, in fact the last couple seasons have been very good 2017 we set record low track errors at all times Um, And even during some of the bigger storms we've had, the Harveys, the Irma, the Maria, the Florence, and Michael, we've had very low uh, track errors, which is great. Uh, We still struggle sometimes with forecasting intensity, Uh, But again, don't get too overly confident in those tracks because again, hazards extend far from the center, hurricane's not a point, and we have to be aware of that as well.
2: And talking of those hazards here in the Carolinas, we see a lot of flash flooding from tropical systems. Talk to uh, our folks about that and why we need to be paying attention. Even if you live in the Piedmont or in the mountains of the Carolinas, you still need to be paying attention to that track.
6: Absolutely, that's one of the key messages that we're taking along with us this week. And we really want folks to be thinking about Uh, Again, uh, historically, most deaths in hurricanes are from water, not wind. And the last few years, over 80% of the deaths has been from inland flooding. And a lot of these are preventable. Uh, We really need to be paying better attention uh, when we're out traveling uh, before or during and after a storm uh, because we're seeing a lot of folks die in vehicles. Over half those deaths have been people in vehicles. And it's people that don't have enough fear for the water, I think. They're, they're, They're driving around barricades, they see a flood roadway, and they think it's more important to get to the event that they're, they're heading to than their life. And, and we have to change that. It's not acceptable that we're seeing this number of fatalities. We all need to be collectively taking a, an effort to, to reduce that. The, the key message is turn around, don't drown.
2: And so Daniel, as we wrap up here, uh, we're about a month away before the official start of hurricane season. What's your advice to those folks who live in the Carolinas? What should they be doing now as we anticipate the beginning June 1st?
6: Sure, you know, as bad as the last few hurricane season have been here for the Carolinas with Matthew and we had Florence this past year. Um, we can't let our guard down. I really hope it's, it's not an impactful season in the Carolinas this year, um, but if it is, let's be ready. Uh, we have to take each and every hurricane season, each and every storm seriously. It, it's easier to do the preparation now than it is when the hurricane is threatening. So my advice is to really find out if you live in an evacuation zone, Get your food and water, your supplies ready before June 1st, and then just know what you're going to do. If you live in a flood area, find someone that lives outside that area that you could stay with in case we do get that significant either storm surge or inland flooding.
2: Alright, Daniel, Daniel Brown from the National Hurricane Center, we appreciate you joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank
7: you. So glad to be here today with you, Rob, and just uh, uh, as we get started, just tell us a little bit about the, the aircraft box here.
8: So this is the Mighty P3 Orion. It's a uh, uniquely instrumented aircraft for hurricane research and reconnaissance. It's a uh, Navy. Well, it comes from the Navy P three, right. which we have uh, taken from the from the manufacturer and uniquely instrumented for the research that we do. Uh, some of the unique features of our plane are our uh, lower fuselage radar, which is a uh, multi mode radar that can actually lower in flight and scan 360 degrees around the plane as we're flying along, and that data can then go directly to the National Hurricane Center for use in their research models. In addition to that, on the tail, we have the tail Doppler radar, which is a unique radar that actually scans vertically 360 degrees and takes a slice of the storm as we're flying through both before and after the plane. So by taking two scans, it actually allows us to do a three-dimensional view of that storm as we're flying through it and measure those updrafts and downdrafts of the storm and measure those dynamics, which goes towards predicting the uh uh, strengthening or weakening up that storm. That's awesome. Man. How many of these do you guys have in your fleet? Uh, we have two P3s. This one's uh, Kermit the Frog and uh, his partner Miss Piggy is at home getting ready for the hurricane season. So this radar underneath our plane is our multi-mode radar and that actually can lower in-flight that whole radar dish lowers below the plane to clear it from any interference of the plane and can scan 360 degrees around as we fly. So it's just like the uh, the radar that you might have on your phone or that you might get from the National Weather Service. And it's a uh, X-band radar, which is a highly detailed radar for close range uh, measurements. So with that, we've actually just incorporated that into the plane within the last couple of years. And as we're flying into these storms, what we're seeing is that additional detail per- that's provided by that new radar is allowing us to see, never before seen, mesovortices within that eye wall that help explain why certain areas of that storm are more violent than others.
7: Wow. And uh, how, lo- how long have you been uh, a, a pilot in an aircraft?
8: Uh, so I've been flying planes for about 15 years. I've been with NOAA for 10 and flying into hurricanes for about five.
7: Uh, and how many how many hurricanes do you think you've been into? I mean, uh, surely a lot.
8: Uh, we don't typically track the number of named storms because we go into them so often, but what we do track is the number of times we passed into and out of the eyewall of a storm. So I have 48 passes into and out of an eyewall that I've physically flown the plane through, and I've probably been on board for about double that, so about 100.
7: And out of all those missions, uh, what's one that really stands out to you?
8: Well, your first mission is always special. So my first mission was Hurricane Cristobal back in 2014. And uh, that one was unique in that it was a small, tropical storm that increased to a hurricane. It didn't really impact the United States, but for whatever reason, that storm had more lightning than I've ever seen in my life. So flying through that storm, it was like going through a disco ball with all that lightning going on. The other uh, more unique one that really impacted us was Hurricane Irma. Uh, So we flew that storm as it went north of Cuba and uh, went through the Caribbean. And as it was starting to threaten our home in Lakeland, Florida, that one was a strong, beautiful category five storm but we were flying it straight to our own home so we were our forecast was dictating how that that prediction was turning either the west coast or east coast of florida and uh, how it was going to impact our home so we fly the mission then go home and prepare ourselves
5: for it.
7: and you bring up a good point and uh, you know walk us through what it's like in the, in the day of a NOAA pilot you know you know from the time that there's a storm recognition to hey we may need to deploy on this on the storm and, and to actual launch
8: Absolutely. So the National Hurricane Center is constantly monitoring the the pressure systems as they go across the Atlantic. And when they identify something that has the potential for development, they'll start tasking us through CARCA, which is one of their uh, partner organizations with the Air Force. So they'll dictate who gets to go where and uh, launch us out into the storm. Oftentimes we'll pre-deploy out to Barbados or St. Croix in order to get further out into the Atlantic and catch those storms even earlier. Once we do that, we'll typically try to do 24-hour operations, which for one plane, if we have that out there, uh, we'll do two crews and launch typically once every 12 hours. Our typical mission flight is about 8 to 10 hours long, so we'll fly out for 8 to 10 hours, land, refuel the plane get a new crew going and do it right right again that's
7: awesome now uh, when you guys go out are you guys doing low level reconnaissance or, or upper mid-level reconnaissance or can you talk a little bit about that
8: absolutely so our typical mission involves flying at eight to ten thousand feet to uh, to measure all four quadrants of the storm so we'll do what we call a figure four pattern or a rotated figure four pattern which involves making an x typically from the southwest to the northeast and then we go with the winds around to the northwest and then back to the southeast. And oftentimes we'll rotate that about 45 degrees and do it all over again. Um, so what that does, it allows us to measure each quadrant of the storm and measure that dynamics as the storm is strengthening and weakening. In addition to that, what's unique to the NOAA mission is that we will go out there with a research prerogative. So we have scientists that try to figure out what the next latest and greatest uh forecasting technique or feature of the storm that they need to measure in order to better predict these storms in the future. So we may go out there and focus on the outer rain bands or brand new developing storms or decaying storms, try to figure out what makes them tick and how we can better forecast those in the future.
7: That's great. And uh, a couple more things about the aircraft here. Uh, you know, how much? What, what's the weight on this aircraft? I, I, mean, I think these were originally designed uh, su- submarines for the Navy?
8: Absolutely. So this is a former P3 uh, submarine hunter We use it for the weather. So we can take off at up to 135,000 pounds, which includes about a little over 60,000 pounds of gas. So that gas allows us to fly for 12, 13 hours if we really had to and uh, take this plane over 4,000 miles into the storm.
7: Right, I noticed the boom off the front. Are you guys uh, air-to-air capable?
8: Nope, not air-to-air. We're not j- doing jousting with that, but th- what that is is a, it's a gust probe. So that, and uh, now we use the wing probe that's off of our uh, left-hand wing, and we use that to measure the winds at the altitude that we're at. So as we go into the center of the storm, we're trying to find where that wind turns to zero, right where the storm is, right at the center of the storm. And we got to know where the storm is to predict where the storm's gonna go in the future. That's right.
7: Now. Uh one last question here. Uh, you know, once you break into that eye wall and you, you know you penetrate and you get in there and you see that stadium effect.
8: You know, personally, what is it like for you to see that? I tell you what, it's it's quite the contradiction in that it, that stadium effect really only happens in the most severe Category Five storms. Some of those Category Two, Three, Four storms, they still have a lot of thunderstorms in the middle. So even as you break through into the eyewall, right. you may still have to be ducking and diving some of that uh, internal convection. But those that uh, Category Five stadium effect is is pretty awesome. You don't get to see that uh, any other time.
7: That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank yes, sir.
2: All right, we're here with NBC Charlotte uh, meteorologist Larry Sprinkle. Charlotte's weatherman, Larry. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, not sure about that, but <laughs> I've been hanging around a long time you, now. You have. You're a uh, very friendly yeah. face uh, yeah. to a lot of folks here in the Carolinas, and we are out here at the uh, Hurricane Awareness Store, yeah. and so I wanted to ask you, You've, you've been here in the Carolinas a long time. Any rememberable hurricanes?
9: Uh, let's see. Is there one? <laughs> Maybe 1989, September, uh, yeah, 30th anniversary of Hurricane Hugo. And obviously, you know, this is going to my 35th year. I've seen and covered quite a few. But that one specifically impacted me directly because um, the morning that that actually hit Charlotte. Uh, at the station, we had a limited staff. We had two of us in the weather department, Steve Raleigh and myself, and just a nucleus of people to run the station. So there were, oh, maybe 12 people at the most in the station. So they decided to uh, lock a camera down in the studio. So the meteorologist is on, y- on air with a lockdown camera. Steve was taking a break, and I think it was maybe 4.20ish in the morning. Uh, we'd been outside, inside. We knew that the, that the front of the storm was hitting. And I'll never forget the camera was, was like here in front of me. And off to my left is the main part of the studio. And so I'm talking and I'm saying, uh, well, we've, had, uh, we've had reports of wind gusts over 90 miles an hour near Shaw Air Force Base, winds over 70 miles an hour in Charlotte. And about that time I could hear something off to my left, kind of a creaking sound. And then all of a sudden, I looked over and about 500 pounds of ceiling came in right next to me. So the camera didn't pick it up, but but I'm like this. The camera is here, but my eyes are like this. And part of the ceiling just caved in in front of me. Uh, Back to you guys in the newsroom. So it went back to our news anchor uh, uh, at the time, Rick Jackson. And so Rick goes, uh, his camera's back on him, he goes, Larry, let me ask you a question. Larry. Larry was on his hands and knees, crawling. (laughs) Took me two seconds to get out of the studio. But yeah, what happened was, we had a big tower next to the building, a 1200 foot tower. The guy wires that came down one snap, and about a thousand pounds of it, hit the roof. And so that pushed the ceiling into the studio. So I thought I was gonna be the first weather guy to go in the act. But luckily I got there. But yeah, that's, you know, you can't forget that.
10: Absolutely, and obviously, um, that hurricane was intense, but not just on the shore, but also inland, Inland, places like Charlotte. Uh, For our viewers that don't know why exactly it was that those strong winds made it so far into the planet.
9: I mean, I think that atmospherically, you had everything in place it took. You had obviously a hurricane, uh, category four hurricane off the coast of Charleston. You had a big area of high pressure off the coast of New England, area of low pressure in the Gulf of Mexico. Those steered that storm right right across Charleston, right into the Midlands of South Carolina, making that turn more to the north, right over Charlotte, then right over Hickory, and then just on a beeline uh, up the Ohio Valley. I mean, it was atmospherically things that you just don't see that often. It was just moving yeah, so quickly. It was, yeah, absolutely. And, Larry,
2: last year we had Florence that moved through yeah. the area, had a lot of flooding. Talk to us about that a little bit.
9: I mean, you know, uh, that in particular, when you see the – the inland flooding that, uh, you know, maybe it's a a century ago that happened when you had, uh, once again, the atmosphere that loaded with moisture, and that was, you know, Florence was devastating. And when we saw the reports from our reporters, the video that we had, the drone shots of all that flooding, I mean, you know, that's heartbreaking. And uh, even though it's exciting, as as weather folk, to, to cover hurricanes and storms. When you see that, you say, I never want to see it again. I never want to cover this kind of thing again, but obviously that's going to happen again, and I pray that we don't see anything like that here this year again. All
2: right. Well, Larry, we appreciate you thank joining you. us. Thanks and for what you uh, guys do. Great job. Thank you, you job. for uh, everything right. you do
11: for Thank us. you. Okay. And
9: uh, how long have you
7: been a pilot?
11: i uh, been a pilot since um, the early 2000s, flew Blackhawks in the Army first. Right. And then uh, made a switch to WC-130s about uh, seven years ago. Uh,
7: what, what made you want to switch from rotor wing to fixed wing? Well,
11: the army is a good place for a while, but that's a young man's game. Right. I was hoping to fly C-130s. Um, the Hurricane Hunters were right down the street. They had an opportunity, so I took it, so uh, it's been never looked back.
7: Right. Now, in your aviation experience, how many, how many type aircraft have you flown?
11: Oh, wow. Uh, about uh we can go through them uh, i mean just, just <laughs> yeah.
7: we, we can go over the big ones how yeah, about that
11: yeah so like flew to huey flew to Black Hawk, uh, multiple variants of a civilian i flew helicopters offshore uh and then for the air force uh just the t6 the t1 and the c-130 a couple of different variants of the c-130 huey or c-130 oh uh fun to fly be helicopters all day so but getting up, going somewhere, being in a different time zone, definitely C-130s.
7: Right. Now, when you guys, uh, you know, get ready, you know, mission ready once tropical season comes around, uh, how, how does your schedule work as far as, you know, from the time that you guys may have to go recon, recon a storm to, to actual launch time? Yeah,
11: great question. We have, uh, we have an agreement with the National Hurricane Center. We have a 16-hour response time. Um, so, basically, you're sitting around the uh, plan of the day, the pod is what they call it, comes in and says, hey, we definitely want you all to go fly so depending on where the storm is we're taking off and going to fly it that very next day and we'll fly it till the storm dies out if it's in hawaii that obviously takes a couple of more uh, days to get there so they'll usually give us a couple of days response time we definitely want you to get out there and we'll load three airplanes crews and people and go um, but it happens pretty quick um, if you've never seen it you know uh, new people that'll come in it looks like mass chaos and doesn't look very organized but uh, it, it seems to work. It's just right. how it is.
7: Now, uh, your average miss- missions that you fly, I know that's gonna be really dependent on where the, where the storm is, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, you go out to the Caribbean or something, walk, 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 you know, walk us through one of those missions. Yeah, so, um,
11: so a mission, the average mission is about nine to 10 hours, um, depending on how far it is away. So we'll just use flying, in, let's use Hurricane Florence that came through last year. Uh, We we moved to Savannah with three aircraft crews and we were hitting the storm when it was about six hours away So basically five and a half hours to get there a couple hours and then fly back So those missions were long 12 13 hours. So as it moves in uh, you can stay in a storm environment longer Hurricane Florence when it was hitting the coast. I was I flew it for about seven hours on my last flight as it was making landfall uh, they were concerned about how strong the wind was on the backside, so we continued to fly it all the way.
7: Right, now, now for Florence, were you guys uh, launching from Bermuda or
11: Savannah? Uh, Florence. Kinda love it. Yeah, so for Hurricane Florence, we moved to Savannah, so we started flying immediately off of Savannah. We just, we do. they basically, as soon as we flew it the first time, they made a projection, I think within 10 miles, they knew where it was going to hit. It's uh, pretty, pretty accurate. That's incredible.
7: Yeah. Now now tell, you know, for the, some of the viewers that don't, don't really know a whole lot about airplanes, about, about your aircraft here.
11: Yeah, so this is a WC-130J, C-130 coming off the assembly line. We add a few things to it, um, little pieces of equipment that make it a W. Uh, it's a big tank, the J variant is an upgrade if you could see the the props these props uh six bladed props if you look at the NOAA plane later it still has a four like boat paddle props um upgraded engines 4,700 horsepower per engine a uh, lot of thrust we can take off 165,000 pounds if uh war was going on the president could waive it to 175,000 so a lot of weight can come off of this aircraft we normally fly around Uh, topped off on gas close to 60,000 pounds which give us a max loitering time and a little uh Little slop on each side, so we right. have to be super precise on our. Now,
7: now does the Hercules have air, uh, air-to-air
11: refuel capability? Uh, no, thank God it doesn't, because uh, if our aircraft did, they want us to air-to-air refuel, and we would never land.
7: I understand yeah. that. Uh, as far as some of the weather, weather, uh, the weather systems that you may have on board.
11: yeah, great. So the biggest thing for us, um, other than the meteorologists, you know, them being the weather <laughs> weapon, I'm gonna start calling them a weather weapon, but uh, you know, those guys themselves interpreting the weather and sending it back to the National Hurricane Center. We use a drop sign, uh, basically sign falls from the bottom of the aircraft about 2500 feet a minute um and as it's falling it's getting temperature uh dew point wind speeds big thing pressure is the real big thing uh, and as it falls it goes all the way to surface and it's sending information back that's our uh that's our go-to ticket we have a couple of other instruments uh, the smurf i can lie to you it's the surf it's the uh step meteor yeah it has a it has a long acronym it was built in uh, massachusetts by some really smart guys but it's actually looking at waves and as they crash and it's measuring temperature and gives us a wind speed, really, really a upper level right. cerebral stuff.
7: Right. That's uh, that's really cool. Um, as far as missions, what's, what's been a mission that, that really sticks out in your head?
11: Yeah, so uh, I have two. Uh, my first mission uh, flew through a, a tornado, a mesocyclone, and uh, the aircraft was flying itself. Actually, the mesocyclone was flying the aircraft, right. not us, because we would – you know, going back and imagine driving down the interstate and you're, you know, moving your wheel and the wheels aren't turning. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Um, that was an unfun situation. Also, Hurricane Maria a couple of years ago, uh, the winds were 250 miles an hour blowing through the mountains and you're down at 10,000 feet and you're getting this mechanical turbulence. Just you can envision just kind of a vortexing at us and man, it gets hit and. I tell people it was like it felt like the only thing I equated to would be like a sixty thousand pound donkey right. kicking the side of the aircraft. It was it was awful, and that's three o'clock in the morning. You're not most people aren't at their best at three o'clock in the morning.
7: Yeah, that's right. When you guys are flying, do you guys a fly low-level reconnaissance missions, or and b do you are you always on the autopilot or FMS, or yeah. do you hand flying the aircraft? Great
11: question. So initially, when the uh, National Hurricane Center is looking at these storms, they see a, uh, a disturbance, and all they can s- they just see the satellite picture, right? So we'll go out there and fly it and try to get the cyclone. Um, if we see cyclone all all quadrants, they'll name it. So we initially start out at 500 feet. You know, one time, quick story, popping out of the clouds boom it was a cruise ship under you know you kind of fly by and wave at everybody but uh once the storm gets stronger 80 knots and above we'll climb up in altitude you know we'll get to 5,000 we'll get to, we'll to 10,000 and we do use autopilot as much as possible it just relieves us and and uh, we don't get as exhausted, I guess you right. could say. But at some point, the autopilot just can't keep up with the turbulence, so we have to hand fly it.
7: Now, is this a fly-by-wire aircraft? Um, are... uh, no,
11: no, no, you no. Know, this is a 1957's technology. This is a 1997 model, which is a great aircraft, but it goes you know straight pulley and that type of system. Pulley-assisted, I guess you could. Right, right.
7: All right, now, when you guys are doing eye penetrations, uh, tell me what it's like to see the the stadium effect, where you get the,
11: the banding around the eye-wall. Yeah, so... Uh, when we're flying towards a storm, you know, we're dropping down 150 miles out from the eye. Uh, you're flying along and it's bumpy. And finally, the fruits of your labor. When, if it's a strong storm, Like a Maria, Irma, Cat 5, you pop out in the middle. It's the most beautiful thing you can imagine. That that Coriolis effect pulling all the clouds away from the center. I mean, it's just calm, beautiful. It is as it is today. You fly around, kind of enjoy it. Get up, go to the bathroom if you need to, fix your food, and then you got a game on, getting out the other side. So.
7: Yep. Now, now I'm going to finish this up with one last question. When you do the eyewall penetrations, I know I I fly small aircraft, and you know. You know, we go off altimeter settings for autopilot, stuff like that. Is the Herc the same way? So, you know, you may be flying around at 9,000 feet
11: in eye wall penetration. Next thing you know, you're at 6,000 feet. Yeah, it's a great question. So we'll set our altimeters at 299 or 2, standard pressure. And sure enough, as you, uh, aviation world, they say high to low, look out below. Because uh, the lower it is, it's going to bring you down in altitude. So the stronger it is, it's very low inside of that. So when I first started flying them, as you're going through the eye wall, that it's it's getting a lower pressure, so the aircraft it's on autopilot is going. It wants it right now, right? And so I've seen a difference of a couple of thousand feet. So if you're around Puerto Rico or uh, Cuba mountains, right? You get low, you got to be real cognizant of right. that. Right. I bet I bet that's a great ride. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, man. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much
2: for <laughs> your time. Bruce, that was yes, great, sir. Man, appreciate
9: Absolutely. it. Absolutely.
2: All right. So Michael, we're here at the uh, National Hurricane uh, Center awareness tour. You guys have been. Along the East Coast uh, yep. throughout the uh, the rest of this week and continue tomorrow. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the tour and the uh, the goals for it.
12: Well, the goal is really you know people obviously want to come out and see the aircraft and talk to the folks who fly into the hurricanes, but that's a way to, to, to we can use that to bring people out here and, and talk to them about hurricane awareness and get them ready for the season. So we we started off in uh, near Providence, Rhode Island, and we went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Roanoke, Virginia here in charlotte and then we go to brunswick georgia next so we purposely decided to hit some inland communities this trip uh, to raise the awareness of the inland flooding threat we've had a lot of inland flooding fatalities uh, due to tropical cyclones in the united states in the last few years you go back to harvey and then hurricane florence last year so uh you know in charlotte this is the 30th anniversary of hurricane hugo this year which was more of a wind event but as a hurricane all the way into the charlotte area caused a lot of damage and a lot of power outages a really big impact
2: for this region so talk to us a little bit about what you do there at the Hurricane Center. So
12: I supervise the, the group of hurricane forecasters. We have 10 forecasters and we're the ones who are issuing all the watches and warnings and forecasts for all the tropical storms and hurricanes in the Atlantic and then also in the Eastern Pacific. So uh, so I'm sort of in charge of the overall forecast operation. I don't do a lot of forecasts myself anymore, but, I, uh, but during big events I'm involved behind the scenes with coordination, with all the local weather service offices or other countries about watches and warnings and impacts. Uh, I do a lot of the tasking of the aircraft and make sure they're in the right place and ready to help us and get us the data we need. I do a lot of messaging, trying to get the the messaging out to the national level media, and then sort of uh, really focus on the hazards. You know, we want to try to deflect away from sort of the storm details, you know, how strong is the, the peak winds, where is the storm exactly forecast to go, and really focus on the storm surge, the wind, the flooding, rainfall, tornado hazards, what actually affects Affect people. I also do a lot of briefings for the FEMA, state emergency managers, a lot of behind the scenes work to get them ready for the event.
2: Something we've not really talked much about today is storm surge. So talk to us a little bit about storm surge uh, for our followers along the Carolina coast. And uh, you guys have actually started doing some storm surge warnings and uh, watches and things like that.
12: Yeah, in 2017, we introduced a specific watch and warning for storm surge because before that, they'd sort of been. Uh, combined in with the hurricane watch and warning, which we typically issued for wind, but storm surge is a different hazard. You want a different response. That's what drives most of the evacuations that are ordered for hurricanes. So in areas where there's a, the danger of life-threatening storm surge, we want to really highlight that and help, uh, help the emergency managers get those people evacuated out um storm surge has the capacity to cause the biggest loss of life in tropical cyclones in this country Uh, you know going back to hurricane katrina we had over 300 people die from storm surge along the coast of mississippi uh in florence we had a tremendous storm surge not only along the immediate coast but well inland along the noose river up into the New Bern area uh, so it's not just an immediate coastal threat especially in the north carolina coast in the pamlico and albemarle sounds you can get a lot of storm surge up into those rivers and uh, the coast of south carolina near charleston down to hilton head very vulnerable to storm surge so uh, people need to know if they live in a storm surge evacuation zone because that's going to form the basis of your a hurricane preparedness plan if you're going to be asked to evacuate your house you got to know where you're going to go what you're going to take how you're going to get there this is the time to plan all that out before the season starts.
2: And you guys are kind of coming off your off season where you've went over and reviewed some things. Any new products? Anything we can expect out of the Hurricane Center this year? We don't have
12: a whole lot of new products. We've introduced a lot just in the last couple of years. The storm surge watch warning, like we talked about, we introduced a time of arrival graphic last year that uh, showed the earliest reasonable and most likely times when tropical storm force winds could begin at a certain location, and that's really valuable for knowing when you need to have your preparations done by when uh, emergency managers are going to have their evacuations complete but again you know going into this season you just want to be aware of your risk for all the hazards whether it's inland flooding storm surge wind and and have that plan in place as we get into the season
2: and one way you guys are doing as the key messages and every uh um, hurricane center update that comes out talk to us a little bit about that
12: yeah for key messages we sort of started to introduce those three or four years ago to try to Focus everybody on sort of the important points that we want to get across for each storm, which vary. You know, what are the most important hazards going to be? Talk talk about the uncertainty, talk about how the risk is changing with time, or if there's any sort of complications to the forecast that might affect uh, how the hazards are going to change. So we really try to use those, we think about like what crawls on the bottom of your television screen or what kind of news alerts are you gonna get on your cell phone and and sort of what are the few pieces of information that we wanna sort of be high level talking points about the storm. So that's that's what we really have in mind when we create those and we put them in a graphic on our website with some Uh, with some uh, graphical products that we sort of want to convey information with. So and that sort of drives the whole picture, the whole national level messaging about the storm. And uh, we start off really early sometimes, even days before a storm arrives, talking about how the threats increasing or changing encouraging people to look at their hurricane plan and then uh, talk about sort of broad scale hazard information. And then when we get into that watch warning timeframe, we can get more specific with what areas might see the worst storm surge or the worst winds or or what the rainfall is gonna be and and where that flooding might be the worst.
2: And so as we wrap up here, um, for those folks who they find their self in the cone of uncertainty this year in the Carolinas. What's your advice to them? Uh, what should they be looking for from your products? And uh, in general, what should we be prepared for as we enter the tropical season?
12: Well, every year if you live in a hurricane prone area, you have to be prepared to be hit all the time. Um, just because if the season's quiet or busy, it doesn't matter. Everybody only cares about what happens where they are or where their friends and loved, one, loved ones are. So you also have to realize that the cone the cone only tells you about where the center of the storm might go. The hurricane is not a point on a map. It's a big storm it's going to have hazards that's going to extend well away from the center it could uh, have hazards that occur hundreds of miles inland from where the storm initially makes landfall so you can have a storm that makes landfall on the Gulf Coast it can cause catastrophic flooding in the Carolinas uh, a few days later hundreds of miles away so again know what your risk is to those hazards have your plan in place think about how you're going to take care of yourself but also your friends and your relatives anybody who has special needs they might need help getting their house ready Might need help evacuating think about those that have medical conditions how are you going to take care of the the people that you care about as the storm approaches and and do all that now before before the season
2: starts all right michael we appreciate it thank you so much thank you
10: all righty warren we are here today at the uh airport here in charlotte we're going to chat a little bit about carca Uh, first can you tell us what carca is because that's quite the long acronym
13: it is it is uh chief aerial reconnaissance coordination all hurricanes so we're a three-person Air Force unit embedded in the National Hurricane Center. Where I'm actually, I work for the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron, the Hurricane Hunter Squadron. And our job is to coordinate all of the action that happens with aircraft recons. So every morning during storm season, myself or one of my uh, co-workers, we go across the hall to talk to the forecasters and say, what are your needs for recon today? And many days they'll say, no, we're good. That Things are quiet. That's good. And then we'll go back and we'll continue to work with both the Air Force and the NOAA squadrons on training missions because, as you might imagine, flying into hurricanes is not your ordinary everyday mission, so there's a lot of training involved to make sure we can continue to do it as safely as we do. But then there are the days where they'll say, yes, there's a storm out there that threatens land and we need to get some more information on it via recon. Or it might be a situation where there's a suspicious area thunderstorm, say in the Gulf of Mexico, and they're not sure exactly what's happening under those thunderstorms and they'll say we need you to go out there at very low level like a 1,500 feet above the surface and look to see on the you know, sea surface patterns if there's a closed circulation. Mm-hmm. So then I work with the squadrons to assign those missions out and then as the missions fly. Both squadrons are sending all their data back from the aircraft to my office in the National Hurricane Center via satellite link, and then we look at that information, make sure it makes sense in terms of quality control, and we provide it across the hall to the forecasters so they can use that as part of their forecasting and advisory process, and it also goes out to the world so the media and the public have access to know what's happening with the planes inside that storm. So in
10: terms of the quality assurance that you are just talking about, that's going to be a lot of data that you're ingesting. How do you all deal with that much data and make sure that it's all uh, reasonable?
13: Well, there are some, uh, of course, it's, it's a matter of triage. There's some areas that we, we don't look at as much, but uh, certain key areas, like for example, when the plane is flying through the center of a storm, they're collecting data all the way in on the inbound leg about the, the surface winds, the the, high, the speed of the flight level winds, uh, looking at the lowest pressure, the diameter of the eye, and that's transmitted back from the aircraft to the uh, to the Hurricane Center in what's called the Vortex Message. And so that is the key component of what the Hurricane Center is looking at. So we do a very thorough once over, basically looking at all of the other data that the planes uh, sending to us to cross check to make the that makes sense then we're also looking at the broader picture so we're looking at satellite pictures shore data any storms close enough uh, surface radar data to just make sure that the data that the plane is sending in uh, cross-checks with that because we want to of course make sure that the data we're presenting the forecasters is as accurate as possible because as we know garbage in garbage out so we just want to make sure that we minimize if not completely eliminate the possibility of garbage in. Absolutely. And so how many planes are there in the fleet that y'all coordinate? Uh, with the Air Force Squadron, there's 10 aircraft total, 10 WC-130J Hercules. And then on the NOAA side, there's a total of three aircraft, the two P-3 Orions. And then there's also a Gulfstream aircraft that is not a uh, aircraft that flies through the storm, but instead it flies around the storm and also out ahead of the storm, dropping numerous, a couple of dozen uh, drop sons, instruments that sense uh, uh, meteorological information from 45,000 feet down to the surface to gather more information about the steering currents that are pushing the storm along.
10: Wow, so that's, that's uh, I didn't even realize that went out in front of it like that. Um, so talk, let's talk about the winter storms. Sure. Um, y'all do very interesting work in that. I, I don't think many people realize that y'all actually fly planes out to ingest data about that.
13: Right, right. A lot of people say, well, what do you do during the off season? And it's like, well, we do have missions. And one of those missions, uh, during the season, our customers, the National Hurricane Center, During the winter season, our customer is the National Centers of Environmental Prediction in Washington, D.C. So, let's say, for example, there's a a, a nor'easter that's forecast to get going and run up the uh, east coast and perhaps affect the Outer Banks or into the Mid-Atlantic or New England. The heavy snow band in those storms is typically only 100 to 200 miles wide, and since the track of the storm tends to be parallel to the coast, only a small change in the track of the storm can have massive implications of where that heavy snow band will fall. So they, uh, NSEP asks us to go out and fly it as high as we can, which in our planes is about 30,000 feet, and drop, uh, drop sons, those instruments I was mentioning earlier, in long tracks out in the areas ahead of the storm to gather more information about all the steering currents, the, the, uh, the thermodynamics, of the atmosphere, with the hope that what they will do, that all that data gets ingested into the crew computer models, so hopefully that will help uh, squeeze the, instead of the usual sp- massive spaghetti that we usually see with models, to have those start clumping up and that will help the forecasters pinpoint that exact forecast track they're going to go with and that will help them determine whether or not the big snow is going to fall right over the the major city corridor or if it stays out to sea or if it lands inland, you know, heading out, up toward the Appalachians.
10: Do you only fly in the Gulf of Mexico or do you also fly off the east coast?
13: Our actual area of responsibility for the tropical mission is all the way from east of the Leeward and Windward Islands, all the way west to Hawaii. For the winter storm mission, uh, east coast and Gulf pr- for the Atlantic, and uh, we have been doing some research projects in the Pacific and uh, maybe uh, genning that back up. We used to do that in the past and then it dropped off for a while, but we may be uh, going back to that in the future depending upon the results of the research.
10: Okay, absolutely. And I wanna wrap, wrap back around to the question that I forgot earlier. Um, how do y'all coordinate? So when you're going into a hurricane, There's a lot of missions going out. How frequently do those go out and over how many days uh, does that typically happen?
13: So if a storm is not forecast to threaten land, uh, they will not task any recon missions. That's not a good use of resources. Now, it may be determined that scientists will say they'd still like to fly the storm for science purposes and the NOAA airplane will go out. But once it's determined that the forecast track will affect land, and land being of course anywhere from the Leeward and windward Islands all the way west to Hawaii, Uh, Then we'll start flying uh, what we call 12-hourlies, hour where there'll be a mission out twice a day, and each aircraft will go out, do two passes through the storm, so you're sampling all four quadrants, and then come on home, because usually those missions are typical missions that last 8 to 10 hours, could go as long as 12, and so depending upon how far out the storm is, you've got to get out there, and prop planes are not the fastest of aircraft, about 350 miles an hour, getting out there, and then doing time in the storm and then coming back. So then as the storm gets closer to land, we go to what is called a 6 hour leap cycle, where we'll have two planes still go out a day, but each one will stay a full six hours in the storm and crisscross four times through the storm to get multiple samples and and see how the storm is evolving. And then finally, when the storm is about very close to land, about to make landfall, we go to our three-hourly cycle, where pretty much we have a plane in the storm at all times. Okay.
10: Wow, that's amazing stuff. Thank you so much, Warren. Sure
13: thing. Not a problem.
2: Right, we're here at the uh, National Hurricane Center Awareness Tour. We're with Steve Wilkinson, the uh, meteorologist in charge at uh, GSP and uh, probably uh, the biggest uh, office that we work with. So, Steve, uh, thank you for having us out. And uh, uh, one thing uh, we're doing today is awareness about tropical season coming up. And one thing uh, many folks in western North Carolina upstate South Carolina may not realize is we can also see uh, tropical products issued for our area. Sure. Well, the
14: actual storms can come this far inland and they're certainly weakened as they do. But uh, one of the things we've done the last year is actually be able to issue wind products that are called tropical storm warnings or uh, hurricane warnings in a worst case scenario. And the reason for that is we want a consistency of message. If you've got some hurricane coming ashore or a tropical storm and you're putting out a wind advisory, which was all we could do in the past, there's kind of a mixed message there. What's going on? What is actually going on? So to be able to put that product out and say you're going to have 40 or 50 mile or 60 mile an hour wind gust and calling it what it is a tropical storm really helps us message consistent with the National Hurricane Center.
2: And so talking about the threats of tropical systems in western North Carolina, we can see anything from flooding to, like you said, winds. Mm-hmm. Tornadoes are even a big threat. So kind of talk about that and what we specifically see. I know flooding may be a bigger concern in the mountains with, uh, uh, with the upslope and even landslides.
14: Well, sure, certainly flooding is probably the overall biggest risk from the mountains. You get the upslope, as you mentioned. Tremendous amounts of rainfall can, call, uh, can fall from a tropical system anyway. You throw that upslope component where the wind's blowing up the mountains, it just rings out more of the moisture. So just in the last couple years we've had several events that really uh, caused a lot of rainfall in that uh, Blue Ridge area. And so certainly you can get flash flooding, you can get river flooding, slides, landslides like you're talking about, mudslides. And those can be dangerous to people. And so those are things that we're, we're actually trying to work with the North Carolina Geological Survey to get a better handle on how that happens a long way from really truly understanding all all the factors that go into it but those are things we're working on
10: absolutely and that's only just a part of the like many complexities that gsp has to deal with when you guys are forecasting sure everything from northwest flow and the upslope uh, rainfall events Um, can you just kind of give us a general overview on really what's the toughest part um, the toughest maybe system to forecast in our area.
14: Okay, well, I, I would probably go to winter weather yep. if I could. Uh, I think that uh, you know you, you can get the winter, the cold air moving in from the north to the south. You can also have the elevation differences and you can also have the cold air damming where the cold air kind of banks up against the Appalachians. So factoring all that into what, you know, the precipitation moving into the area, what. What is the precip type going to be? Is it going to be all snow? Is it going to be a mixture? And getting those amounts right, and actually where that transition zone is going to be, is is probably our biggest challenge.
10: Absolutely, and you, like you said, the transition zone is typically kind of in unfortunate places where it's you know we have Charlotte, where a lot of times North Charlotte, and as a matter of fact, this year we just saw that where North Charlotte got a couple inches of snow and South Charlotte got deadly squat. Right. Exactly.
14: Um, uh, roughly, people say roughly along the I-85 corridor. It's not exact, of course, mm-hmm. and it. Re- varies by storm. But the same thing down in the Greenville Parkmark area in addition to Charlotte is is your your pop your largest population centers are located right along that line and so you know you shift your rain snow line or sleet or freezing rain ten miles or twenty miles you're impacting in the, in the case of Charlotte, a million people or more. Yeah. In the case of Greenville's Park, maybe half that. So it's, it's a big, big challenge. And, and talking about the, the cold air damming events, as well as
10: Northwest Flow events, um, those are two events that are rather unique, actually uh, explicitly unique to the GSP area mm-hmm. um, and this kind of section of North and South Carolina. Is there any research going on to kind of help us understand those further? Because I know they cause significant, even sometimes forecast busts, just because it's really tough to forecast those and no one really knows exactly what to do.
14: Sure. There actually has been a lot of research in recent years. I mean, I can't point to anything that started just recently. Mm-hmm. But in recent years to try to, especially out of, like, NC State and some of those uh, c Star projects that mm-hmm. they've done um, to try to figure out what is it that causes the cold air damming and, and exactly how to do it. The, the challenges are 32 degrees versus 31 degrees, versus 33, it's just right on that line, That's so tough. And usually that's right where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Northwest flow, of course, you know, you really what you're doing on, on the Northwest side is just upsloping, just yeah. like you are on the Southeast side, except it tends to be colder and less moisture, so you don't get the extreme amounts of precipitation, but you can get several inches of snow, in some cases five, six inches in the, along the Tennessee border in the western North Carolina mountains. So really it's the same process. It just mm-hmm. takes I mean, takes effect in different ways, different parts of the area. Absolutely. So.
2: And so Steve, as we wrap up here, uh, for the folks in your weather office, what are you guys focusing on as we come into this active tropical season? We've had an already active severe weather season with sure. you guys have already uh, had to do some tornado uh, surveys. So what, what are we looking at? So what are you guys focusing on as we get into these active summer months?
14: Well, certainly the next few months will be the afternoon thunderstorms that are going to pop up just about every day. And they're going to pop up over the mountains, the Blue Ridge. And most cases, it'll drop either or move east or southeast into the upstate of South Carolina or the Piedmont of North Carolina and into the Charlotte area on on many days. And um, those will be, I'll call it locally severe. And and a local severe storm could, you know, downburst, a little hail. Not going to be widespread in most cases tornadoes or anything like that, but certainly can bring some trees down, can be dangerous. So that's the next few months, and then beyond that, you know, we'll be, we'll be training as we go into the next, uh, as we go into the tropical season. Hopefully it's a quiet season, but we have to be prepared either way, so we'll be looking for the latest policy updates, the latest training, latest tools that we can use to try to provide the best forecast we can, and then just trying to message and communicate things, what the risks are, which is kind of what this event's doing.
2: So I think we're all hoping for a quiet season. Steve, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. you. All right, we're here with Chief Meteorologist at WBTV, Eric Thomas. Uh, Eric, friendly face to most of us in the Carolinas. Hope
1: so, yeah. I try to keep a smiling face on (laughs) as often as possible, except for when the severe weather rolls through.
2: That's right. So we're out here at the Charlotte Airport, the uh, Hurricane Awareness Tour. You've been here in the Carolinas for, uh, what, 30 some years?
1: 31 years uh, this fall. I was introduced at the Greek Festival in uh, 1989. So, so, or, I'm, no, 1988. Yeah. I'm getting old. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so you've had your fair share of, with hurricanes. Obviously, Hugo sticks out. Tell us a little bit about that. Maybe some other hurricanes that kind of stick out to y- you.
1: You know, uh, Hurricane Hugo was interesting because, you know, I got here in the fall of 88. And in November of 88, they had that F4 tornado up really? in Raleigh. And next thing I know, I'd barely got my feet on the ground, and I'm in a helicopter flying over this tornado damage and thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into? (laughs) So I got through that, and then 89 rolled around, and here comes Hurricane Hugo. And I have to tell you, we were woefully under-equipped back then in the weather department. We, We actually, when I got here, I was the first meteorologist to ever work at WBTV. So at the same time that I got there, they were feverishly trying to bring in the weather equipment that would allow me to really do my job as a meteorologist. So at that point we really didn't have any real analytical equipment. So I was a slave to just this little sheet of uh, one page of, of weather surface weather maps from AccuWeather to kind of like look at this and go, oh gee there's a cold front, <laughs> there's a warm front and that looks like a hurricane. You know and so I mean we had the little 300 baud weather ticker back then you know tick 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 you know bringing up the data. And so, uh, but to, to their credit, you know, AccuWeather, as this storm was getting closer, you know, was was letting us know, look, this thing has got a very fast forward speed. It was like coming into the coast at around 35, 40 miles per hour. And the problem with that is you've got a Category 4 hurricane down there, and this thing is going to be up in Charlotte, you know, within four, five, six hours. That, that's not much time for a Cat 4 to spin down, is it? Right. And so we were warning people, look, this is going to be different than most of the coastal hurricanes in the past. And we were feverishly trying to tell people to tie everything down, get ready. This is not going to be good. Even with that, though, we had no idea uh, that it was going to create the amount of destruction that it did. Uh, I remember when the first light came up and I was there all night. And we looked out the windows out of the radio station that we have there, and my jaw just dropped because it seemed like there must have been 95, 100 pine trees that were just mowed down. It looked like Godzilla had come through. (laughs) I mean, it was unbelievable. And uh, and then of course the rest is history. You know, we've always heard about how people were without power for three weeks. You hear the sounds of chainsaws buzzing in the air, you know, week after week. I remember when I was trying to get home that day, and it took me a long time to get home because of all the blocked roads. that, you know, the very first intersection that I came to, right at the bottom of our hill, uh, there was a National Guardsman there with his M-16 machine gun, you know, in the intersection. And and that's when it really hit me. I thought, you know, it feels like I am in a war zone here. Uh, And that's what it was, you know, with just the complete destruction of the infrastructure around Charlotte uh, and and all the trees down the road's blocked, stores closed, nobody could get gas. You know, and it was just really... um, intimidating, you know, to be, you know, to be a part of that as a citizen. Um, and, and then after that, of course, you know, all the, uh, the cleanup and the recovery began.
2: You know, most hurricanes that we have to deal with here are tropical systems bringing the flooding threat. 2004 comes to mind, Francis and Ivan, especially up in the foothills. Uh, we had a lot of flooding up there. Last year, Hurricane Florence with flooding. So uh, talk to us about some of the bigger floods that you uh, that you've covered here.
1: I would say the biggest one, hands down, was, uh, of all things, Hurricane Danny. Uh, and Danny came in, that was 1997, and it came into Mobile, Alabama. I mean, and you're thinking at that point, you know, big deal. What? That's not going to be uh, a situation for us. And it, it kind of wobbled, of course, a week, it is a tropical storm, and it just kind of wobbled across Alabama, you know, and then made its way into Georgia, and then finally it, it got up into uh, Charlotte. And overnight uh... danny dropped twelve inches of rain in twelve hours uh, right on top of center city charlotte and uh... we had lakes you know where there are normally just roads and parking lots around charlotte charlotte was just paralyzed you know from this flooding and you may remember this um, that's also when that locomotive fell down into the uh, little sugar creek uh... because the whole trestle collapsed uh... from the just the enormous amount of rushing water just eroding away you know the natural uh... Uh, trestle, you know, that that thing was on. In fact, uh, there was even a lawsuit, you know, over that um, because of the engineer was hurt and, and things like that. But um, but uh, that is probably the most impressive flood that I remember. Now, of course, I remember some floods up in the foothills, which, of course, that's your territory. <laughs> uh, seems like, uh, where was it, Uh, uh Caldwell County? There yeah. were, I, but I think that might have just been a... Uh, uh, a summertime thunderstorm, yeah, summertime thunderstorm there. Thunderstorm. Yeah, 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 that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. But but no question, Danny was was the most impressive flood, at least close to Charlotte, uh, in my 31 years.
2: And so, um, as we wrap up here, yeah. this is a diverse area where you work. We have yeah. anywhere between uh, major ice storms, tornadoes, tropical systems. Talk to us about the forecast area here in western North Carolina, the upper regions of South Carolina.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know what any meteorologist is going to tell you. If, if you ask him Where is the hardest place to forecast? He'll always tell you where I am. Uh but but maybe I can actually make a case for that, uh, because I heard a climatologist one time say uh that there is more um, a m greater diversity of weather uh across North Carolina from say the western tip to the coast than anywhere else on the earth. I think it's like in a tie with somewhere over in Asia. Uh but but you know you cannot there is not one weather element that you can name that doesn't occur in our area. I mean, whether it's hurricanes, ice storms, lightning, hail. Uh, look at the wind that we have. Look at that. We had a fatality here just a, a week or two ago in the sky, under sunny skies, you know, with, with this massive wind field that came through. So, you know, yeah, you have the snow, um, the hurricanes, the tornadoes. I mean, there's nothing that you can name that we don't have here. So, it, 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 it for me, that's not a complaint. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating a place to forecast and it certainly keeps you on your toes and obviously the mountains are a huge factor uh... because you know when you are trying to you know track these air masses coming in from the west you know a lot of times you know they'll get blocked uh... and or heavily modified you know or vice versa when you get the cold air damming coming down from the coast the mountains once again you know they set that whole situation up so it's a uh, It's just it's challenging, and it's and I love the challenge.
2: It's fun. Well, Eric, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Scotty. Good to see you. Take care.
0: That does it for this special edition of the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you have a happy and safe 4th of July weekend. If you're watching us right now, don't forget you can check us out on your favorite podcast app and listen to us while you travel. Or if you're listening to us on the podcast edition already, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our all-new features, including voice memos and ways that you can financially support the Carolina Weather Group. I'm half of everyone. At the Carolina Weather Group, I'm James Briarton in Charlotte wishing you a happy and safe 4th of July. We'll see you back here next Wednesday night at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time for our all-new edition of the Carolina Weather Group.
12: Hey, this is Tim Bounds, digital content editor for the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to check out our weekly live stream every Wednesday at 8.15 p.m. Eastern on all the major streaming applications such as Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and Twitch, just to name a few. Additionally, be sure to catch our weekly podcasts that are published on your favorite applications such as Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. Stay weather aware, drive hands-free, and have a wonderful
5: day.